0: Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is T.W. Walsh, and if you're not familiar with him, he is an American songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, record producer, mixing engineer, and mastering engineer. He was a member of the group Pedro the Lion for many years and has since gone on to start many other projects of his own. These days, you'll typically find him doing a lot of mastering work where he's worked with artists such as Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie, Nathaniel Radcliffe. Clap Your Hands and Say Yeah, The Shins, Sufjan Stevens, Cold War Kids, and so many more. And in today's episode, we have a really great chat all about the process of mastering. And TW is very, very articulate with defining his process and why he makes the decisions that he does. And I think he says some things in this interview that sound kind of counterproductive for people who are inexperienced in this industry. One of the most notable things that he says near the end of the episode is how you don't always want to master each song to sound the absolute best it can. And I think that 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 is a very interesting statement to make. And so you'll totally understand why he says that at the end of this episode, but... I think that he he comes to this with a fresh approach. And I think that it's something that the experienced mastering engineers fully understand. But for the inexperienced person, some of the stuff might seem counterproductive. So in this episode, I think you're going to learn a lot from it because he's very articulate with his answers and he's very intentional about why he does what he does. And he explains that really well in this episode. So if you've ever been curious about the mastering process and what goes into it and ultimately what pro mastering engineers are listening for... I think you're going to learn a lot in this episode. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. T.W. Walsh, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for
1: having me on, Mike.
0: Awesome. For people who might not be familiar with you uh, or your background, can you give give us a little bit of that background on who you are, what you do, and how you got into everything you're currently working on?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm an audio engineer, producer and uh, an artist as well I'm a songwriter I've been in several bands as a multi-instrumentalist so my whole life uh, has been about music and technology and creativity and um, so that's kind of how I found my way into this into doing this stuff.
0: Awesome so how did you like obviously you said you started as a musician um, but like what ultimately got you into that technical side of things Uh, you know what was that transition like for you?
1: Yeah, it was like kind of a DIY mentality. You know, I grew up in an era where it was, uh, we were still dealing with analog recording technology, like digital technologies existed, but they weren't uh, consumer products yet, you know? And so um, I was in bands from the time I was about 12 years old, playing drums, you know, making original music, writing songs and stuff like that. So you know, you want to document your progress and and kind of have something to listen to. So it just started kind of sticking a a boombox with a cassette recorder in the middle of the room during band practice and recording that. And then just uh, from there, uh, it was just kind of random that one of my buddies, uh, his older brother happened to have a cassette four track, you know, uh, because he was into synthesizers and, and samplers and stuff like that and and recording music. And so we kind of would s- steal the four track when he wasn't looking and started messing <laughs> with overdubs and things like that, which kind of was kind of mind blowing. The concept was tough for us to wrap our, our heads around. Um, and so, yeah, from there, it just kind of grew, you know, like once we had the capacity to record and Layer Music, um, we kind of wanted to keep taking it to the next level. And we got to have some experience in recording studios locally in, in Massachusetts. I think um, at a certain point, like ADATs came along so we could afford to get into one of these ADAT a track studios when I was about 14 or 15 or something. And then started seeing like, oh, this is how you can do it if you have multiple microphones and, you know, there's a mixing board involved and things like that. And so it just kind of kept <laughs> going from bunches? there, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of mind blowing seeing all, all this stuff set up. And then, you know, when I was in college, it, it just kind of grew from there to where I would um, own, you know, real to real eight track machines and borrow gear and get into slightly better studios and start picking the brain of the engineer that was working there. And mm-hmm. um yeah, it was just I was usually the one that was more most curious about the technical stuff, and then also if you're if you're recording a record, you know I was playing drums in a lot of those early projects, so like you you get the drum tracks down, and then you're kind of like hanging around the rest of the time while people do their <laughs> overdubs. So, so you I got to sit on the couch and watch like everything unfold and kind of learn learn about what was happening, you know. It's very cool. So, with your interest in the technical side
0: of it, was like, did you foresee yourself getting into the technical side as a career, or was it more just like a means of like just documenting the music that you were making?
1: I was really just interested in the creative process and like making stuff, you know, and, and, um, it didn't occur to me that it could be a career or was an option really at all until maybe late, late into college where like recording schools started popping up in, in, um, in Boston and stuff like that. And like you, would I'd hear about people going to the Berkeley, you know, production and engineering programs and stuff like that. But, um, it was purely like out of the love of making stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, at a certain point, I started thinking about, like, going to school and, and doing that. But it was, I don't know, I, I think uh, I didn't allow my my brain to go there, really, with my aspirations. And there really wasn't a lot of information about how to get into a career like that. You know, even if you went to a school, you'd hear, like, I would hear stories, like, about people uh, having a tough time finding internships and and, and getting getting jobs and stuff like that. So it was a, like a different world in the, in the nineties, really, you know, pre-internet. And, um, it was a much more analog world where communication, networking, information, it was all, um, it was all about different. It was all, it was all different than, uh, what we have now. And then it was also like a transitional phase too. It wasn't the golden era of recording studios either. You know what I mean? So, hmm. um, um, a lot was changing in, in the industry. And I was just kind of focused more on academics as far as like a career. I came from like a blue collar background. So I had this like DIY and kind of, um, hardworking mentality. And then you go into school studying mechanical engineering and, and computer science. Like I didn't really start connecting the dots that like all of this could be woven into a career. I was just had kind of a limited, limited idea of what that could look like, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What well, also sounds too that you were establishing yourself in your as an artist as well. So you know if you're performing and stuff like that, and networking within that circle of people, then you know you could transition this into yeah. something where you can make some money and work with other artists. Um, and yeah, it sounds like you got into studios really young and you were observing it really young. So um, and and doing a lot of that trial and error very early too. So um, yeah, it kind of makes sense. It, like yeah,
1: maybe the school route wasn't the right place for you yeah that's a good point like first off like i the technical stuff like learning how to do this stuff it was always in service of like my creative pursuits making the music and like it was a shortcut or a way to control um or or conserve expenses um by doing it ourselves but it was in the service of being an artist but then yeah you're right like i kind of had a lot of experience early on already that i wasn't sure that what, I, I wasn't sure that I was going to get that ROI, that return on investment of like going to a recording school, you know, like I knew how to set up mics. I knew how to like, um, you know, uh, wire a studio and and um, operate a tape machine and things like that. So yeah, in retrospect, like it seems like, uh, all you know, all the pieces make sense. But um, back back then when I was in it, it was a bit chaotic and I had, my priorities were just to like, being a band, you know, that was mainly being a band and like not fail out of school. Those were kind of the, the things that I was worried about in the 90s, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, of yeah. course. Do you remember your first like paid project that you did and, and like what got you, what what made you feel like I'm ready to take this on? Because a lot of people just like, you know, they'll tinker on their own stuff forever and they nitpick so much and they just are like almost like they're just intimidated to like ask someone to like pay them for their their services. So what was that like for you?
1: Yeah, so um that's a good question. I think that what happened was, you know, I became known in my in my friend circle as a guy who knew how to do this stuff and I had like some of the equipment and everything. So instead of like offering my services, I had people coming to me to help them like solve some problem or mix mix finish their project or somehow prepare their their music for distribution. Like I started getting into real DIY mastering as soon as um, it became affordable to buy like external CD-R um, drives, like for for computers. Um, there was a uh, you know primitive technology called SCSI, which was a way to um, send like data at high speeds to peripheral devices. But it's it's very very archaic now. But like. Back then, because I was comfortable with the technology stuff and computers and stuff, like, I got my hands on... I was the first person that I knew that could just burn a CD. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, people started coming to me um, just in my friend group and my peers, and, like, I would be doing favors, and I kind of helped people um, just for fun for a long time. And then my first project where there was some kind of real compensation was... um, there was a local guy who owned like a, a guitar shop and he offered me like this, um, you know, this vintage uh, Fender Mustang guitar to master. I don't remember if I was mixing or mastering something, but like help him finish a record. And so that trade was kind of the first thing where I was like, Oh, you know, like I can, I can do this for trade and maybe I can like start to um, get paid once in a while for, for doing this. And the main idea was just to kind of like subsidize my gear costs because I was always like trying to upgrade things or, you know, it's expensive to do this. Like, even if you're not, I mean, just to, just to own the equipment you need to do this stuff, um, and to be able to keep it up to date every five years, like do some upgrades. Like I was, I was deaf. I've been losing money from the get go just (laughs) due to gear acquisition syndrome. So I was like, Oh, maybe I can kind of like, um, you know, pay for some of the gear I need by doing this. And so, um, you know, just word spreads, word of mouth, you know? And, and so I started getting paid a little bit here and there. And then it, as soon as like the internet was really mainstream, that's kind of where it turned into more of a business where people could send me files to work on, whether that was mixing or mastering. And, and so that was like in the early two thousands, mid two thousands. Um, um, where it just became a lot easier to like work remotely and and or even like receive a zip disk in the mail these these types of things you know.
0: Mhm. And correct me if I'm wrong but you were doing a lot more mixing work at the beginning, right?
1: Yeah, um mastering for a long time it seemed like a black art, you know, you <laughs> like it was like kind of the last frontier of of things that like only the professionals do, you know. And I think even with digital audio back then in general it, well, there wasn't a lot of information with analog like you could really it was only like yeah you were only worried about what it sounded like and you use your ears there were VU meters and and things like that but you knew that even when you clipped or hit the red <laughs> that it still could sound cool i think in the digital domain there was a lot of like uh unknowns you know it was it was you know when it came to bit depth and and resolution uh there was a lot of uh, confusion as to what are what are the absolute rules here. And even like um, when it came to digital clipping, and this is at the peak of the loudness wars and stuff like that. And the information just wasn't available, you know, like, uh, so I had to, I learned by trial and error, like learning. I, I, I had to read a lot and experiment a lot with digital audio to know what the limits were and what the boundaries were and how to go about mastering a record. And um, and so I was largely self-taught, but I had stayed away from it for so long because digital audio was still kind of... Um, it was a little scary to us, uh mm-hmm. amateurs, you know what I mean? Like it felt like it it felt like science and we didn't want to like set the lab on fire or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So it sounds like yeah, you were you were mainly running an analog setup at that point and just kind of seeing that digital was on the horizon and you know at some point you would make that migration, I guess. But Yeah, I was yeah.
1: I was working in the analog domain and I would mix into the computer and then do some mastering in there. So like my mixing platform was um was cool edit pro at first it was like this you know one of the first kind of easily accessible stereo audio programs you know that was my first daw as well oh nice nice (laughs) nice so um yeah it wasn't even multi-track at that point it was like wow it went to it went to stereo you know what i mean um so the green (laughs) the green waveforms on the black background i'll never i'll never like i'll never forget that but um it also became, over time, you know, mixing is really labor-intensive. You know, there's lots of revisions, typically. You know, everybody in the band has got to make sure that their instrument is is loud enough. And, and so <laughs> there's a lot of back and forth. And then also, um, over time, um, bands were, and artists were, were doing their own mixes. And um, they were looking more for somebody to, like, fix any of the deficiencies in the final product and kind of like put their stamp of approval on it. So that's kind of what, um, people started asking me to do more mastering than, than mixing. And I think that was just kind of a trend in the DIY, um, you know, music industry that mastering was still something that people were afraid of. And I had just graduated to that a little bit, um, and so that's kind of what I started focusing on. I'm trying to remember when, when I started really doing more mastering. But it was like uh, in in the mid 2000s, probably or something like that. Late that's late cool. 2000s. That's cool. Yeah.
0: Well, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but with that transition from digital, uh, you know, and seeing kind of like, you know, this the loudness wars and all that stuff that was going on at that time. Um, when I was doing my research on you, I did find this article that was really interesting where you were being interviewed and you were talking about your mastering process and loudness in general. And I'm assuming you were talking about kind of this point in time. Uh, but there was a quote from you that said that uh, in the beginning I hated having to make things loud; it seemed destructive to me. Over time, I got more skilled and more flexible with how far I was willing to take things. And and I was curious to know, like, could, can you elaborate on kind of what that destructiveness was that you found when you're turning things up? Like, you know, it, and does that still apply today?
1: Yeah, good question. There it doesn't apply as much today, especially since like Spotify, they're they're actually um normalizing audio downwards typically. They they actually reduce the the volume of of um of mastered tracks when they come in. Um but back then, you know, you'd want to maximize everything was on a CD and you'd want to maximize the volume so that when <laughs> These this is like the days of, of C D changers. You know, like you would have um you'd buy these these C D players that had like twelve 12- discs that they could they could play in them and you okay. would put them you'd put them you put 12 cds in there and you hit shuffle
0: i still have a six disc cd player in my car yeah, <laughs> yeah me too and, and
1: you've been listening to the same six discs probably oh, yeah. I, for 10 I, I years them
0: maybe like once every yeah. year and a half or something yeah. like that yeah. <laughs> just, just one of them you know
1: <laughs> so I, I mean i th- really think this is kind of what drove the whole thing was that you know people were still listening to physical media and even in the at the beginning of like itunes Um, you know, shuffling and playlists and things were starting to become a thing. So everybody wanted to be competitive in in listening volume if if your music was being played on shuffle. So as a mastering engineer during that era, people would always be comparing what you did to the loudest record they own. You know what I mean? And they would say, Mm. it's got to be louder, it's got to be louder. And um, as an artist and as a mixing engineer... Like, when, when I was working on a song and working on an album, when I finished the mix, that's what I wanted it to sound like. You know, I wanted it to come back, you know, maybe louder, but I wanted to, in mastering, um, I wasn't looking for them to change the sonics, really, of of what I was what I was doing. And so I would have these mixes coming in, and, you know, at times maybe it wasn't to my taste or it was a genre that wasn't my favorite, but I always... Um, would try to respect the what the mixing engineer and the, and the vision of the artist was, and and so the I you know my assumption was always that like they liked how it sounded, and they didn't want to change it that much unless they said that uh, to me. So. When I found myself having to get these mixes up into insanely loud territory, the only way to do that is by really, you know, um, ruining the dynamics, like the macro dynamics and the micro dynamics, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of alternative rock music has got like quiet verses and loud choruses, you know. And so as you kind of like hit the limiter harder and harder, not only do the transient sound worse, and you know, as an engineer, you know this, like everything... Um, starts uh, the 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 macro dynamics of the song changes like you know the the kind of uh, emotional impact from section to section changes. So um, I didn't like introducing the dis- you know unpleasant distortion and changing the dynamic so extremely in in the mixes I was getting over time. I I really refined the techniques that I I, I could. Um, live with you know like whether that was certain types of clipping or you know finding limiter settings that gave me a kind of compression characteristics so I didn't have to do two stages of of um, kind of gain control and gain reduction um, and so yeah over time I just got better at tech at using different techniques and some of the tools got better like over time like the 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 in the box tools in particular got super super refined to where you could do lots of different kinds of um, multi band limiting and and really different kinds of transparent clipping and stuff like that. So um, that's what I was talking about when I think when I, I wrote mm-hmm. I wrote that response. But over time, because uh, the distribution channels have now started, like I said, manipulating the input. That we're giving them, so that they're equal. They're uh, they're taking care of that for us. So now we can preserve a lot more of the dynamics, like with the Lufs standard, and like minus fourteen is kind of the 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 RMS um, that Spotify uses. So um, we can kind of like ease up on that quite a bit and really respect the mixes more and more. I'm finding though that like still there are clients out there who 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 need to be kind of educated on the on the state of of digital audio and streaming and stuff so there's still some confusion out there as to like what what how how important it is to make something loud of course. Well, yeah, I was curious about that because obviously,
0: yeah, these these different streaming services, they all have their recommendations for how, li- how loud things should be or, um, you know, I guess what they're going to what they're going to normalize all the volumes to. Um, and I was curious to know, like, how that impacted the work that you were doing, because it seems like most of the big records that are getting distributed, people aren't People still aren't submitting things at minus fourteen lofts. They're, yeah. they're still giving them significantly louder, um, and so it's kind of like for a lot of people who are are newer to the scene, they, they see that Spotify says my, minus fourteen, and they think that that's the standard that they need to hit. But yet, all these professionals are still going way above that. So, yeah. I was cu- curious to like get your input on that, and you know, how you're approaching your masters at this point, and uh, you know, do you care about that minus fourteen, or is it just kind of a a thing that you just deal with?
1: Yeah, so I think a lot of it has to do with taste like because we were conditioned for 25 years that like uh dynamics and transients sound a certain way on the records that we've been listening to for the last since since the early 2000s or late 90s there's that sound to records like the digital clipping and the um reduced dynamic range to a certain extent that just becomes a the taste and what everybody's used to listening to. So I think a lot, of like engineers and producers from a certain generation or certain people working in genres where the standards were defined by that generation, like, like anything that has guitars in it is going to harken back to what was happening, you know, in alternative rock, essentially like totally. in the, in the nineties. Right. So that is kind of the sound of that type of music to a lot of people. So I think that that is what drives that um, mentality still. It's like a taste thing. For sure. And in those styles of music, like those heavier rock styles,
0: like, you know, if we're, if we're talking about luffs, those are often in like the, you know, minus eight or minus six in that
1: range there. Right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, sometimes mixing engineers, producers, they, they mix into like, um, the Sonox limiter or like the waves, whatever it is. And just because it's part of their sound and they want to get that, that the sound, the sound of the transients that way. And so that's totally respectable. That's just the sound they're going for, you know? And, and so the, but the reality is like that when Spotify processes that it's going to, it's going to bring that down six DB, you know, (laughs) or whatever it is. So, (laughs) um, but uh, it's beside the point. They're going for that sound, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like you're kind of just... It, it's still just taking that old-school way of thinking about mastering and just letting the digital distributors do it, whatever they need to do to, yeah. to make people get consistent audio, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, in my opinion, like, a lot of what I'm doing... Um, it's either, like, sometimes it's one-off singles, but a lot of the times, if it's an album, there are different distribution channels that we're worried about. Like, like a lot of the records that I do, they, there is going to be a vinyl version. You know what I mean? And so, like, a lot of the mastering considerations are geared more towards having a high-quality vinyl master, and you kind of got to, like, even even it out, even out the difference. Sometimes, once in a while, I'll get an artist that wants to do, like, one... Vinyl Master that has no no limiting, no compression whatsoever, and just, you know, like, to, to get it as pure as possible. But usually it's like you're trying to kind of even out all of the different considerations for different distribution channels, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So then
0: ultimately in the end, like, how do you know how loud to make a track? Like, is it is it just kind of a feel
1: thing for you at that point, or...? So these days, I go, I, I aim... I mean, it really depends on on the dynamic range of the of the tracks that I'm getting, right? So, like, a lot of times, um, the mixes I get are already, maybe they're, like, minus 10 luffs or something like that. And so, I don't want to give them back something that's quieter, necessarily. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> um, but I would say I try to beat that minus 14 standard, and then I say to the artist, like, you know spotify is probably going to turn this down this is this is a healthy loudness whether it's you know minus 12 or even minus 10 that i end up with because the the transients were already really controlled let's say in the in the mix that i got um so i just try to beat that standard a little bit so that um it's still a little bit competitive if they're comparing it to other files on their computer but i try to educate them that this is this is going to be normalized and brought down in in the distribution channels anyway. So I really appreciate that it's it's more about th- what it sounds like these days than how loud it is ultimately, but like I said, the education level for artists and stuff is not always there and and you could even you're not comparing apples to apples on your on your on your macbook either if you're listening to masters back because you might be listening to this song in spotify and you know something i sent you just in the finder preview with quicktime or it might be an itunes so it's um i think it's complex to monitor an ab for for artists when they're getting back mixes and and masters and they're thinking about volume so it's that's a really good point yeah because yeah if you're listening on spotify you're hearing that kind of codec applied
0: to it and you know although they it's it's technically quieter depending on you know what's going on in your spotify settings it might sound louder you know exactly (laughs)
1: exactly so it's really tough i think for uh, artists to even know what they're what they're getting back sometimes beyond just the sonic quality if they're thinking about volume I just hope that that kind of becomes less and less relevant over time as we get like higher um, data transfer speeds. We can get higher and higher quality audio and we have more and more headroom with like 32-bit audio and stuff, you know. For sure.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it's like, it, it, to some degree, it's it almost is like the opposite of the loudness wars to some degree on Spotify where it's like, you know, they're saying like we're we're turning things down. You know, yeah. instead of like everything getting louder, but there still are those people working from that loudness war perspective, and so it's it's just like this really interesting in between time where I think there's just a lot of uh, like there's programmers and then there's the audio engineers, and yeah. they're they're not really communicating with each other very well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a long time for these different mediums to kind of really reach a saturation point and for people to really understand what's happening, but. When I was a kid, the format was vinyl right and then it was cassette and that was my that was my format as somebody as a somebody coming into their own as a music level lover was 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 cassette and then it was c d and then it was like uh m p threes that were you could consume and now we basically have full resolution whatever twenty four forty four one um kind of audio with a lot of the codecs that we have now but like all of these formats still exist and there's periods of time where um they're all yeah they're all coexisting, and and um for uh i think we have to live with with all of them and it's and it's it can be messy um if you're working on the technical side and confusing if you're an artist or a consumer just like what are the differences between all all of these things you know Mm -hmm. yeah
0: i guess i guess the uh the safe the, the, the reassuring thing is that if you go too loud, you're still safe. They're going to turn it down. If you're too quiet, they're going to turn it up. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> from that sense, it's just like make it sound as good as it can, and just trust that the other side of it will even it out for you.
1: Yeah, like yeah, the distribution channels are are the the, the great equalizer. They're they're going to. Um it's up to them ultimately, <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I guess I guess, still having that old school way of thinking about, you know, making everything loud, that still applies if people are going to be making physical CDs and that kind of stuff. Because, you yeah. know, it, presumably someone who's buying a CD to begin with already has a CD collection at this point. And so when they're, when they're flipping between their six CD player, or six CD CD player, then they're going to notice the differences in volumes if one's way quieter than the other. But... But I guess
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that it's such a small, it's such a niche market now. CDs that it it is it is a thing, but um, it's mostly it's mostly a thing for people who are just nostalgic about it as a format, like that are like my age or something, or you know, yeah, it's it's kind of like the vinyl people too, yeah. right? It's just yeah. a nostalgia thing.
0: Um, in that same article, you had also mentioned that uh, in your opinion, mastering is all about creating cohesion between all of the tracks on a record. And um, and I'd love to dive into that a little bit, too. Like, how do you go about creating that cohesiveness? Like, what kind of stuff are you ultimately listening for? And then how do you go about making that cohesiveness?
1: Yeah, um, good question. So, I mean, first of all, with anything I'm doing, I I try to I try to follow like the Hippocratic Oath, which is at least first do no harm. Right. So um, I'm trying to kind of preserve what's great about the mixes and you know respect the intent of the artist and the producer and the mixing engineer. And then from there, um, when I am working on a project that's an EP or an album, you want to make it sound like a record. You know, like when you're mastering a single, like you can kind of do whatever you want. It's living in its own world. It's a one-off thing. And, um, you know, you might be you might get a specific brief from the client where they, they wanted loud or they wanted brighter and you can do all of that. When you're mastering, you know, a 10 song record, you want to try to find the balance point tonally and dynamically that all of these different mixes can um, be adjusted to sit within that range. So whether and, and some of the time um, the mixes are, are already really consistent, but some of the time you maybe have, you know, five mixes that are kind of like tone uh, that are tonally like middle of the road and they're all consistent. And then you might have a few mix, a couple mixes that are, that are much brighter and a couple mixes that are much um, that have much more low end. In that case, it's, it's kind of obvious unless those, so you you're trying to bring the bright mixes down tonally to the middle range and you're trying to tame the low end on those those bassy ones to get to the to get to the majority place and in other at other times you know you have mixes that are kind of all over the place and so in that case you kind of need to choose the song that is going to be like the maybe the sonic template so you have to like bring everything to where that song is. And that might require some collaboration or conversation with the, with the artist or whoever's in charge. But it really is about getting the songs tonally from an EQ standpoint, all in the, all in the same ballpark. So it's not jarring when you move from, from song to song. And then you also have to get the songs into the same relative, like average loudness the thing is that what's more important than that, than that is that the transitions from song to song feel good. Right. So like there's, there are cases where you might need to, in order to make uh, song number two sound natural coming out of song number one, um, the intro uh, because that, that transition from the fade out of song one to the intro of song two needs to feel good. So you, That's where you need to worry about, like, how to adjust the average loudness of each of those songs so that the transition feels good. You might end up with a chorus in song two that sounds way louder than the chorus in song one. And then you've got to, like, make macro adjustments for everything else. So there's a lot of small adjustments. You need to make some judgment calls. I don't really love to like automate the volume of individual sections of songs too much because I, I feel like that is changing the vision of the artist and the, and the, um the mixing engineer. So I try to do as much as possible with like kind of adjustments at the song level for tonally and average loudness to make those transitions all feel good and feel like it's like kind of a single piece. Mm-hmm. And then you know so sonically those are the considerations and obviously there's a bunch of like file prep and like quality control stuff that goes into preparing the deliverable so that they they are workable down the road for manufacturing and and all of that. So um those are all the considerations when you're working on a on a record like instead of a instead of a a single, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think
0: you're absolutely right that if you start automating like a verse and a chorus and all that kind of stuff, then you're really taking away from that natural dynamic that the artist liked in the initial mix. So it really is more about that average listening experience. Are you, do you find yourself like maybe listening to like chorus, the chorus of song one, the chorus of song two, that kind of thing, and like comparing like the loudest parts of the song against each other?
1: Yeah, that's where I start always. Is like once I've got the tonal stuff working right, and I'm getting into like the, really a lot of the dynamics and 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 the loudness stuff. I do first compare the loudest sections of songs to get them in the ballpark. That's my starting point, and I'll check the transitions and see if the if if um if that works. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's a lot of it is a judgment call and um. It's more about feel, you know what I mean. But you need a starting point, and that's where I start—is getting the loudest sections of the songs in the same ballpark. Of course, yeah.
0: Yeah, and you talked about how earlier how you know part of your role in mastering is to preserve that mix as much as possible. Um, and some people might argue that, like, oh, if you're you know boosting the low end in a mix to make it sound bigger to match, you know, song, the song before, that kind of thing, then you're changing the overall, the mix. But I'm assuming that a lot of these changes you're making, they often just need to be subtle. They're, you're not getting yeah. too crazy with a lot of the bigger moves.
1: Yeah, I'm really a conservative mixing engineer. I'm kind of old, maybe old school in that way, um, but it's it's worked for me. And so, like, yeah, I'm talking about, unless something's really egregious, like, I'll, I'll be high passing or shelving like the subs and um because somebody just mixed it they they uh didn't have a mixing environment that could that was really revealing those those frequencies you know so um you know i have a good listening environment good good monitoring and i use um you know a lot of visual tools to like double check my work too to make sure that there aren't there's nothing weird you know that i really need to clean up but the moves that i'm making are typically not super drastic you know mm-hmm. i'm assuming they're fairly pretty broad yeah maybe not yeah yeah because i i you know like there are there are times when for whatever reason like a symbol on a track like the crashes are not cutting through and every other track has these loud brash symbols and you've got to like really notch and kind of like find the frequency to bring the sing symbols out or whatever or 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 take something out um but now there's even like great dynamic tools that are, you know, are, are, have, have AI assistance or you can, um, are much more dynamic, like as opposed to just notching a frequency with a, with an EQ, there's lots of dynamic EQ or, or multiband compression, multiband limiting that is dynamic that can help you with that stuff now. Mm-hmm. Do you use any of those AI tools in in your mastering process? Um, not a lot. What I, what I Try to do is um, if I'm working in a genre I'm not familiar, not as familiar with, or I'm just looking to double check my work. Like um, there are some good AI tools that that have um, kind of recommendations for different genres for like the loudness range of a specific section of 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 the frequency band. It's really just like double checking my work that I kind of. Um, might leverage that stuff and i've just been dip- dipping my toe into that because it's a, still a pretty nascent technology you know that For i sure. you know i don't trust our robot robot overlords very much <laughs> yet i just i just think that it would it's you got to stay on top of the technology and understand it you know yeah well it sounds like the ai tools that you're using are more like from uh a- it's like monitor metering yeah mo- mostly metering yeah yeah, it's not like you're running it through like Lander or something like that, and no, no. letting that master something. <laughs> no, never. And like I've I've messed around with like AI EQs and stuff from Sonable and everything, but um, I di- it didn't it didn't sound right to me at all. It's it's really not there yet, and maybe um maybe it'll get there, but um for metering it's really good. Um, maybe for adjusting overall levels, like you could kind of use it as a starting point for you know just um. I mean, there there are good tools for like calculating overall RMS across the whole track and things like that. It's it's like quality control and metering. Gotcha. I think they're 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 really it's really helpful for right now.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a a good distinction to make, right? So that people don't just think like, oh, well, you know, I heard him talk about AI tools. I'm just gonna let it let it do whatever it does and. You know that that helps right <laughs> but it's like no when you're using these ai tools to help you with like overall balance and that kind of stuff that's way more helpful than it just applying random processing to your to your mix and yeah. you know hoping it sounds better i guess you know <laughs> yeah i mean
1: I, I mean i but at the same time i think people should do whatever they want if they get the results they want by using like soundcloud mastering um uh service then you know good for them like i think that a lot of times that works for people because um, they don't have the experience to to know better. You know what I mean? They don't know what's what's possible, and um, they're their maybe their ear isn't as developed as somebody who's got um, you know thirty years of experience in working with with audio. And um, but with uh, two hundred thousand new songs a day coming through Spotify, it probably doesn't matter that most of them don't sound as good as they could. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of hit songs that don't sound right to me. um, But what I'm concentrating on is like um, sticking to my values and my taste and working with and serving the community that is in tune with what I know, you know? And so um, there's still a lot of people um, making music that, are striving for a certain standards and they have like taste that is, um, informed by, you know, the 50 years of record making that we've got, um, so far, you know, of course. Well, taste is definitely one reason to hire an engineer because
0: you're going to get their, their, their taste, yeah. um, and it, it kind of reminded me of uh, a question that I wanted to ask you, which was that you know when I was listening to your your Spotify playlist that you've got on your website and you know all the different examples of your portfolio, one thing that did stand out to me that um, I thought sounded cool was that a lot of your mixes and your masters they do typically seem like a little bit darker than you know the typical modern pop or rock song um and so i was curious about that like you know is that something that is just a personal taste of yours or is that something that is usually dictated more by the productions that you're working on Mm -hmm. um you know, and, and I and by dark I don't mean that in, in a bad way like I know I, I know it, what you it, mean yeah it, like they said they weren't harsh like a lot of the modern pop songs that you hear
1: right yeah you know a lot of the stuff um I've done probably has kind of ra- you know maybe some rounder low end and more and even prominent low end not sub lows but like you know um uh low end and um, doesn't have hyped high end and so I think that that does come out of um My background is more kind of in, you know, my taste was really shaped in an analog era. Um, And I also come from a background of like underground music, and that might be, it's like indie rock. Um, I like a lot of like lo-fi, original lo-fi version one music, um, which was um, stuff recorded on cassette, which has a a kind of... um, you know, a roll off in the highs, you know? And so that is more of a, is more of a taste thing. Like the way I listen to music and I, and I, what I like is, um is just a little bit rounder sounding and maybe a little bit squishy, squishier sounding. Um, And also most of the music that have gotten in, has, has, uh, or a lot of it has the mixes have sounded like that. Like I would never want to crank the highs by eight DB or something like that just because it's closer to what's on the radio. Again, it's respecting the vision of the artist and the, and the producer, the creative people that, you know, their mixes sound like this and I want to preserve that and present it to the world. And I'm not here to, I'm not their A&R guy who wants to make it pop on the radio unless they tell me that something was wrong in our monitoring environment. Like these are way darker than we want. Can you do something about it? You know? So um, it's a combination of taste and also, you know, just uh, respecting what's come my way as far as source material, you know?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I I think, you know, at this point in your career, you've worked with so many artists that people now know what your sound is, or your, your yeah. taste, and, and what the, what to expect from you. So it kind of makes sense that that artist that's looking for that super bright, harsh-sounding top end is probably not going to go with you. And that's a good thing, yes. right? Like, yeah. you're going to go to that person who's going to specialize in doing that, right? right? So right. you kind of attract the the people that you want to work with and, the, and that are going to have that sound that you want to work
1: with as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Cool. I mean, we, we, we covered a lot of ground already as far as your process with like loudness and and balancing and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, maybe in some ways we we jumped ahead of one of the questions I always like to ask people, which is like, how do you get started with your master's to begin with? Like when, when you have a new project, what are some of the first
1: things that you typically do with that track? Well, I, I definitely listen to it. <laughs> um, I think that uh, my my process has really evolved over over time quite a bit um but i think that one of the first things i'll do is kind of clean up the the uh tips and tails of of all of the of all of the files like a lot of the times there might be a lots of lead time or extra space at the end or whatever i try to clean up you know the, the tracks if there's a huge variability in the the average volume just like even visually with the with the track sometimes you'll get like a record that was recorded at you know over the course of five years or at different studios different mixing engineers maybe i'll adjust the um the gain of some of the clips like the uh, the audio files themselves to bring them a little bit more into the the same ballpark to where the transients are kind of like looking similar Hmm. um just so that when i first listen um, they're they're going to be um a little bit more uniform you know and and that so that when if I find settings or whatever that work for some of the songs that um I can use them as a starting point on other songs or things like that so are you like are you normalizing your tracks at that stage or
0: is it kind of just like a a fader thing or
1: no I've never used automated normalization up front um be, because I don't think that the the I mean, if we're just talking about like linear normalization, that's, that's looking at the kind of the transients. Um, I don't think that that's that valuable. I'm kind of just going by gut, you know, like making these adjustments, um, you know, having with the with the amount of experience I have, um, mm-hmm. also if I, I might start laying them out, I do. I have different types of workflows that I mess with, but I might like lay them lay them out on different tracks linearly, so I can start listening to the transitions. Or I might keep them all at zero in the timeline. I have different ways of doing things that I I experiment all the time. So mostly, it's like I do clean up. I try to identify if any of the songs are like at a different bit depth or resolution. I kind of like try to get all my ducks in a row before I really start working on any audio by determining if there's any quality control issues. Like maybe the song is obviously cut off at the end. And I want to, I want to try to like, if I need any more corrections or new files from the client, I want to get that done as early in the process as possible. Cause I don't want to like miss, miss a deadline or anything like that. So know getting my template set up making sure that all the files seem right and getting them into a position where like when i'm ready to start working i can just kind of hit the ground running you know Mm
0: -hmm. of course uh you mentioned templates do you have like specific tools that you generally like to use or a template that you typically work off of or
1: yeah um i do have uh mastering templates in my in the diaws that i use um so I have like analog, I have like outboard gear and I have a few things that I, I do just in the box. So like, um, you know, I think most of us are doing like the digital, the the final limiting in the box these days. And then maybe like linear phase EQ, maybe in the box and things like that. So I do have templates that, um, have the, the tools, the, the, in the box tools that I'm using nowadays. Um, and, uh, I, I still haven't settled on like a particular limiter. Like I, I I'm always trying different things, but, um, and then every six months or so I'll save a new template with kind of like whatever mm-hmm. I've been using most recently for a long time. Um, but I, it, it, it's tough. Like I, I still use a number of different, um, uh, DAWs for different purposes. You know, like I have, I did, um, a lot of my mastering, um, with Logic as the, as the main platform for a while but um I'm really like an Ableton live guy so I've been trying to make Ableton work for a lot of the audio processing and and kind of main capture software um so I've been I've been trying to make that work um recently and I, and I like it like I think Ableton actually sounds really good like I I've done some a being between lots of different DAWs and It might be placebo effect, but the playback engine um, in Ableton is what I'm used to at this point. And I like that. Um, I still have to use other software if I'm creating a DDP or I'm doing different kinds of like file preparation or delivery. But for a lot of the audio stuff, I'm using Ableton because it's kind of what I'm used to and where I'm comfortable
0: For sure. And I think that that's a really important point to bring up, too, is that, you know, you have to work with whatever you're most comfortable with. Yeah. Um, Yeah. For myself, like I did all my mastering in logic for for years and then I had all those other programs to do do the DDPs and embed CD text and all that kind of stuff. Um, And only recently did I switch over to to using WaveLab. And it's been such a hard transition for me because I'm just so like, although I can do everything in one program, it's just like learning a whole new language almost, you know?
1: Yeah, I've tried Wavelab. I've tried a lot. Most of the different mastering software that's available, all of the different DAWs. The thing that I've found is that none of them have everything that I need, right? So it's like I need to find the one that is fastest for me. Um, and uh, then I've had to create my own workflows for some of the stuff that I do, whether that... Um, is just my way of thinking about my order of operations and how I like to export things. I want to be able to rename bulk files. I want to, I want to do a lot of automation stuff. I want to be able to like, you know, freeze files without having to bounce them or whatever it is. I haven't found any software that really fits the bill for me. Um, And so I think for my workflow, I still use like kind of a multi-track DAW software um, and then I do. I have like a lot of the time. It's like assembly and file prep and stuff is a separate process for me, you know. Mm-hmm. So I can't. I can't, I haven't been able to find like mastering software that allows me to do the audio and all the file prep and delivery stuff. It's just like cl- the audio stuff is clunky in the mastering software, and then like the file prep stuff is clunky in the in the DAWs, you know. So it's uh. It's kind of annoying, but um, I think the only solution would be for me to, like, design and build my own software, and I'm, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. <fair>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, when it comes to using what I guess a lot of people would consider a non-mastering DAW, whether that's Logic or Ableton, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I think one argument that a lot of mastering engineers will make for for a program like WaveLab or a uh, mastering DAW is that you know you have things like your your clip processing and all that kind of stuff, um, and you know just the way it lays it out and you know two tracks you can you know stagger things and that kind of that kind of thing where you can't really do that as much in Logic or Ableton. So are you just like just basically copying all of your plugins onto every channel and then every channel's its own song that kind of thing? Is is that how it would typically work for you?
1: Yeah, I have a different cha- I have a different track for every song. And then I'll have like the you know if I'm using the same limiter on every song I'll have that plug in on every one of those tracks and um yeah that's just how I how I address it um yeah and because the way that I'm used to thinking about audio processing as well as like is how it's laid out in a DAW you know you have like your your plug in channels. And um, in, in in like a channel strip type of interface and um, just the routing and the interface and how plugins, um, it's mostly like the user interface and user experience that is really familiar to me and fast because, you know, I am an artist and I'm working, you know, I do a lot of writing and recording and mixing and um, in a traditional DAW, and my work, I'm really fast at it. And so, for me to have a totally different type of workflow in mastering, which is all I'm doing is manipulating, uh, listening to, and manipulating and editing audio. Like if if mastering is you know fifty percent of my time in in working with audio, and the rest of it is like as an artist and stuff it to do that total context switching and go to a totally different system it doesn't doesn't work for me like i feel like mastering something like ableton live like um and being knowing the ins and outs of it and and you know even being able to get creative with some of its advanced features or maybe some plugins that are not typically used for mastering because i have experience with them mm-hmm. in my creative work Um, it's kind of like, it's a no brainer for me. Like this is kind of my, my domain, you know? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Again, it's just that speed is definitely a big part of it and just being comfortable. How long do you think it normally takes you to finish a, finish mastering a song on average? Oh, an
1: individual. Yeah. It's, it would be tough to say like, it really, it's really all over the map. Like, um, and I don't keep track of it either. That's something I probably should do from a perspective from that's something I should probably know, but I have no idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I always find like if you're doing a single, it always takes a lot longer because you're like really focused on that song or at least like the first song you master on an album and then the rest of them typically go much faster because you've kind of already established that template, right? But
1: Yeah, I think that that, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that's accurate. Right on, man. Well, I guess to to wrap things up, I'd
0: love to ask you, you know, in your opinion, what ultimately makes a great mastered mix?
1: Well, it depends on the, the, the context. Like a great mastered mix in the context of an album is something that makes the album cohesive and and um is a is appropriate for the for that context. So that's something very specific, you know, like when you're mastering an album it's not a it's not necessarily about making each individual song sound the best possible. Because it depends, you know, like the instrumentation and the mix and the sonic quality or characteristics can be so all over the map. Um, so with an album, you're you're thinking about the whole, and you want the whole to be as strong as possible. And there are different considerations, compromises, choices made along the way to to make a cohesive and maximal quality whole like maximal impact um for a single it is you can concentrate more on maximizing what that individual song individual mix is trying to accomplish and so you uh i try to approach it as a listener and and from a, a, the perspective of a listener like maximizing the emotional impact of of the song so making the big parts big making if it, if it's a if it's an acoustic track trying to preserve the intimacy of it so it's finding what each of these finding what the song is trying to accomplish maybe what the lyrics are saying how, what the emotional quality of it is and trying to max maximize that and serve the song i love that that's a such a great answer
0: and i totally agree with you and i think it's i think it's really great that you brought up that point that it's not about necessarily making the song the absolute best it can, because, you know, and I think that that's, that's what everyone expects it to be, yeah. right? But it really is more about that bigger picture, that actual experience of like, how does this butt up against another song? And what's that experience like? Because I think if you were to master all of those songs in isolation and make them sound the best they can, that that might be great from like a singles perspective. But when you, when you are listening to that album,
1: you're going to have such a hard time listening to it because it's it's not going to flow well, Right. It's not, yeah, it's not a record. It's not going to sound like a record. And I've, I've heard many records, even going back to the CD days where there's one song that maybe it was the single or whatever, but it sticks out like a sore thumb because it's like way, way brighter than everything else. You know, it's, it's, um, and for me, that's that really ruins the experience of listening to the album and, you know, I'm an old fashioned, I'm an old guy. I'm an old fashioned person, I guess, but I, I still listen to albums, you know? And, um, so when I'm talking about that approach, it really is in the context of, of, uh, of albums trying to make the best album possible. Um, and it doesn't necessarily apply to just, stand you know the, the I have different approaches for standalone singles and albums cuz I and I and I love albums you know
0: yeah now that makes sense but it's it's very similar to like how mixing engineers you know, you're not always, you're not mixing to make it sound the best it can in your specific room. Right. Right. You ne- yeah. you need to be mixing so that it's, it's going to be something that translates well. And that's ultimately that experience that people listen to, right? Like yeah. they're not listening in your room with your treated, you know, treated system and amazing speakers and that, this and that, like you're, you're ultimately just trying to make something that, that is kind of that status quo that people are expecting, I guess, you know? It's and, an average. Yeah.
1: I would refer to it as like the average listening environment. You want it to be you want it to sound as good as possible and you want it to still translate in your average listening environment. I think it's dangerous to cater to the lowest common denominator. Like got to make sure it sounds good on a, on a, you know, listening on the, on the phone speakers. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, because it's just not realistic to get, you know, bass frequencies coming out of, out of, out of that. But, um, you do want it to sound right or, uh, you don't want it to sound out of place on or unusual in your listen in your average listening environment. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, with with mastering, it's about averaging out all these different considerations, whether that's me mediums like media like vinyl versus CD versus digital versus YouTube, um, um, and then all of the potential listening environments. So it it's um a lot of that has to do more with quality control and um, th- than anything else. And uh, so it's, it's an art and a science both, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love it. I think that's a,
0: a phenomenal answer there. So thank you for that. Um, well, TW, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed learning a lot about your process and, and uh, I think you gave us some really clear answers as to like, you know, how you go about things and why you do that. I think that's really important for people to be able to take this information and actually apply it to their own tracks. So, uh, so thank you for that. If people want to learn more about you or potentially follow you online, maybe even hire you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah. Um, my website is twwalsh.com and, uh, you can read, a, read about what I've got going on as an artist. I've also done a lot of uh, a few remixes for for artists other artists recently and um get in touch with me about mastering there at twwalsh.com i'm also twwalsh um on instagram and twitter so um yeah feel free to reach out awesome we're right on man thank you again for everything thanks a lot mike
0: So that was my interview with T.W. Walsh, and I really enjoyed that. I thought that he was very articulate with his answers. And I think that if you're someone who didn't really understand much about the mastering process prior to this episode, you certainly should have learned a lot. And I think that it was really interesting to learn why he does things the way he does, despite the fact that on the surface, some of those things might sound counterintuitive. But what he talked about here is exactly what mastering engineers are focused on. They're really focused on creating that ultimate experience for the listener and sometimes that means that you got to go louder than what spotify recommends sometimes that means that you have to change the eq of a mix to make an album sound more consistent and sometimes that means that the song isn't going to always sound the absolute best that it can but by creating the bigger picture experience That's the thing that people are really going to enjoy much more than just a whole bunch of random songs that are at different levels, different EQs, all that kind of stuff. You have to be thinking about that bigger picture. And that's really what mastering engineers focus on. So yeah, I thought it was really great to hear it come from him and to just explain the thought process behind it. And it's not just about following the quote unquote rules that, you know, the industry tells you that you're supposed to follow. Sometimes you need to stray outside of that path to ultimately create a better experience, a better product. So yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. I hope that you did too. If you did enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about even more episodes like this as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're someone that's looking for additional help with your mixes, heck, maybe you're looking for mastering, make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. And on that website, I've got a ton of great resources designed to help you out there are coaching programs. If you're looking for one-on-one support with your mixes, if you're looking for someone to master your tracks, that is something that I can also help you out with as well. So again, if you visit MasterYourMix.com, there's a services section on there and that'll take you to a site where you can tell me a little bit more about your project. And I'd love to work with you and master your tracks so that you can get more music out in the wild. So yeah, again, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. There are a ton of great resources there to help you out. And at the end of the day, My goal with this podcast and my goal with that website is to help people put out more music and to feel proud of the work that you're releasing. So, you know, that is why I do what I do. And if you're in need of help, MasterYourMix.com, that's the place to go. All right, guys, with that said, we have reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Later. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.